Sure. I, if I walk over there, it's going to screech and scream. I'll just do it. Um, Mike just wanted me to mention that last week he gave a shout out to this book, You Can Change, which is entirely related to the sorts of things we have been looking at in Romans chapter 6. There's still a couple of copies left. Some of them have gone. If you're interested in what that book, how to get a hold of it, talk to Mike after the service. It's a cracker. We've, not only have I read it more than once, we've even done it as a course here at church. It's, it's just a consistently helpful book when it comes to progressing in holiness. I feel rusty. I haven't preached in, it's two weeks. It's been two weeks. Um, what do I do with my hands? Yeah. We're in Romans 6. It's been a good time. Uh, the story thus far, the book of Romans has been explaining the central message of the Christian faith to us at depth. And it tells us that the, the biggest problem that the human race is this thing called sin. We have all rebelled against the God who made us, and that rebellion has changed our nature. We're all corrupted. We're not always at our worst, but we're never as good as we should have been. This world is broken. We call it only being only human. God calls it sin. We fall short. Sin is a problem because God is holy, and in His perfect nature, He is, is, is unwilling and unable to tolerate sin. God is going to judge all sin forever. That's the bad news. The good news is that there is a solution which does not require us to be punished. A surprising solution to that dilemma. The solution is not that I work really hard and earn back God's good favor, and then God maybe accepts me maybe one day. That's not going to fly. The solution is that I place my faith in Jesus as my savior, and that his life and his death and his resurrection is enough. It's sufficient for God to forgive me. Jesus has earned it for me and given it as a free gift. I don't work for and earn my salvation. It is given to me freely, and that is called grace. Salvation from God is by grace and through faith. Now, in Romans 6, this chapter of the Bible deals with some of the obvious objections to the idea that salvation would be by grace and through faith. Imagine it, that you'd lived your whole life believing that salvation was by works and then some weirdo comes along and tells you, Paul was a weirdo, by the way. Like, if you, if you, there's some like historic drawings of what he may have looked like, and they, they look at all of the sufferings that he'd had across the course of his life, the shipwrecks and the floggings and the, it's like, imagine, imagine a short Near Eastern Jewish man with a limp, right? His face is just a mess. No, 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 you've had it all wrong your entire life. Salvation isn't by works, it's by faith. What's the objection? If, we were, if we're going to put our critical hats on and think, well, hang on, no, that, that, there's some loopholes here, isn't there? If you tell people that salvation is by grace and not by works, they'll abuse it, right? That's, that's what we do. That's what we do. Who, who looks after free stuff? If you, if, you, if you work hard and you earn a thing, you treasure it, right? But if, if you get it for free, eh, easy come, easy go. What happens is if, if you tell people, this is the objection, if you tell people that they will be saved not by their doing, but by grace, you will produce people who are antinomian, who have no regard for the law of God, who are sinfully permissive with their conduct. They will misuse the system and live unholy 
lives. Paul had to deal with this objection again and again and again. As every time he planted a church, he would leave and move on to the next one. And in his week would come the in his wake, sorry, would come the the false teachers who would flood in and pervert what he had done, uh, pervert what he had said. We we hear this battle happening in basically every single letter of the New Testament, which is written to a church. You can hear it, can't you? Did he really tell you that God would accept you on the basis of faith alone? He is so wrong. Yeah, faith is great. Faith is important. You need to have faith, but you also need to follow these laws and then God will accept you. You need to be typically circumcised and eat the right foods because these were Old Testament Jewish false teachers. If you listen to Paul, if you place your faith in Jesus alone as Savior, you will never obey God. That's the objection. And so for the last couple of chapters... Paul has been anticipating objections to the gospel message of salvation through faith. He's, he's shown us that this message is actually the message of the entire Old Testament. He showed us that in Abraham. He showed us by going to Adam what it is that makes it actually impossible to earn your salvation through works. We're just not capable of it. And over the last two weeks, Mike has done a wonderful job of showing us the, um, the answer to the first objection um, that Paul raises in chapter 6. Paul has been arguing with us, trying to convince us that grace is actually more effective in producing a holy life than the motivation of salvation by works could ever be. The, the, the precise opposite of what we expect to see is true. If you tell people to work for their salvation, they will produce skin-deep works. On the outside, they will demonstrate, I am working for God, but their hearts will remain far from Him. You say we will get godlessness if we preach a message of grace. No, that's not what's going to happen. Don't you get it? What happens when we become a Christian, when we place our faith in Jesus the Savior, is that we are joining with Christ in salvation. We die and are born again. How could it possibly be possible for somebody who has died to sin and been made alive with Christ to continue in the life of sin that they were living beforehand? How would that be possible? Salvation by faith leads us to be made new, which is what changes our actions. Holy actions don't create our salvation. Our salvation, our salvation creates holy actions. And the illustration that Paul used was baptism. To be a Christian is to be buried with Christ into a death like his. And the death we died, we died to sin. We died to the old way of our life. We died to the former state of our being and we are also raised with him up out of the water as a whole new self thoroughly saturated from head to toe from top to bottom from the inside out with the presence of God's own Holy Spirit far from enabling a life of wickedness far from enabling a life of wickedness salvation by faith produces the required heart change salvation by faith alone can produce the required heart change that sets us free to live for God. Now we get to a new objection. We find it in Romans 6, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. This is where I can steal Mike's no way Jose joke. He's saying it again. I thought it was pretty good. It's a similar question from earlier in the passage, isn't it? It's a, there's a slight difference. The first question was this. If I sin more, 
doesn't that mean I get more grace? So ultimately, it's a good thing that I sin because then grace gets shown to be awesome. It's like it's a perverted question, isn't it? It's it's actually what the sinful nature does with God's laws: is it goes looking for a loophole and turns things on themselves. This question is subtly different. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? If I'm under grace and not law, doesn't that kind of mean my sin doesn't matter? It's a dangerous thought, isn't it? If I am under grace and not under law, what's the big problem with my sin? I'm going to get forgiven, right? There's not going to be any consequence other than my being forgiven. So why can't, why can't I just live the sinful life under the banner of grace, free from the penalty of sin? It's a good question. Are you ever tempted to think like this? Now, nobody's going to shout out, yes, I think like this all the time, because that would be too embarrassing. But we are, right? There is that moment in all of our lives when no one is watching, where you are alone, and sin is crouching at your door and desires to rule over you. That moment when you catch yourself thinking, if I do this, no one will ever know. And God will forgive me. So let's get it done. We all have, we all have that moment. I have that moment in my life on, on more than one occasion. Who's it going to hurt? Somewhere in the back of your mind, I'm under grace, not under law. What's it matter? Satan's a very good liar. And our sin is very receptive to his lies. Our, our flesh is. Shall we sin because we are under grace and not under law? No way, Jose. Why? Here's the answer. <laughs> it's a weird one. <laughs> Just to, before we read it, like, what would you say to someone who's like, should we sin because we're under grace and not under law? Is that okay? And you were like trying to convince them, no, that's not a good idea. Where would you go? Like, what, what theme would you use to illustrate why that's a bad idea? If you picked... I would tell them that they should choose between two kinds of slavery than you thinking like Paul in Romans chapter 6. My goodness. Let's have a read. Verses 16 through 18 of Romans 6. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as an obedient slave, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Why is it that our sin still matters? (laughs) Because in life, the best you can hope for is to choose between two kinds of slavery. It's a little surprising, isn't it? What on earth is he getting at? It, it, it's, it's as offensive, isn't it? In the present culture, we like to think of ourselves as free. We love being free. Our, our autonomy, our personal freedom, our free will is just such a high value to us. It's a thing that we, we treasure and pride ourselves in. There's so many different versions of how this plays out in culture, right? There are should be said, many kinds of freedom, many concepts of freedom that are Christian values. As as Christians, we don't reject all freedom, right? Jesus said in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He wasn't kidding. 
He also said, if the sun sets you free, which by the way is what he promises to all who come to him. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Do you want to know what freedom actually is? This is the freest freedom you will ever know. Be set free by the sun. So we're, we're pro-freedom. But there is a specific kind of freedom that we like to think that we have. It's culturally precious. It's personally precious. Which we do not in fact have. And our trying to have this kind of freedom is actually a pretty good definition of the human fallen nature. That's how broken it is. We try to be independent of God. We try to be free. We like to think that we are free like God himself is free. Completely autonomous and subject to no one and nothing. There is no force, external or internal, which affects my will and is outside of my control. We like to think we're free like that. There is a famous poem called Invictus by the English poet William Ernest Henley. It's a cracking good poem. And as a side note, that, uh, that poet was the inspiration for the fictional pirate Long John Silver. How's that for a claim to fame? If, if, after, if after I die, someone wants to turn me into a fictional pirate, I'm for it. The last stanza of the poem goes like this. Oh, it's stirring. It's blokey. I love it. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Oh. This, this, this was the poem, uh, by the way, that was, it was very popular during the First World War amongst the British soldiers, and it sort of was, was famous as encapsulating the, the stoic British spirit in, in, in warfare. It's a really good poem. It's stirring stuff. So it's got one big problem, though. It's not true. Only God is free like that. Only God is free like that. Only God operates according to the counsel of his own will and nothing else. All of the rest of us are subject to something. You and I, we have a will. But we are influenced by things beyond our control. There are things over which we do not have mastery. There are things which have mastery over us. We have a will, but it is not as free as we like to think it is. Because that's not the purpose for which God made us. He didn't make us to be his replacements, to set us off into the universe to be new gods. No, we, we, you and I, we were made for a different purpose. We were made for worship. And worship we will. We are, by our nature, worshippers. We all worship something. We do it compulsively. We can't help ourselves. It's an inescapable truth of life. This is, this is the inescapable truth. You will serve a master. Everybody worships something. Everybody worships something. When Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters, for he'll love the one and hate the other, it implies the uncomfortable thought, you will serve at least one master. You will worship something and devote your life to it. And when you devote your life to a thing, you'll serve it. It's inescapable. Fish swim, water flows downhill, we worship something. And that thing becomes our God. Ultimately, your choice of God comes down to one of two things. You can worship your creator, or you can worship a false God. That's the, that's the big decision in life. That's the best kind of freedom that we can hope for. Some, certainly, worship themselves, for example. 
but worship it is. Self is their God, and they will live their life serving the God of self. We will all worship something. And then Paul lets us in on another important part of that puzzle. We've mentioned it briefly. The thing that you worship, this is why it matters, the thing that you worship will have a controlling interest in your life. It will shape your actions. It will shape your being. It will create you. What you worship, you will serve, and the thing you worship will master you. It will control you. This is, this is going to be true. You will submit your life to its service and serve it. Paul uses the concept of slavery. You present yourself to someone as an obedient servant. You become its slave. We will all do that. And Lee was wrong. And so in life, we get to make a choice between two different kinds of slavery. Doesn't that sound appealing? Because we don't like that word. Because it is necessarily offensive. You can be a slave to God and serve him. Slave to righteousness. Or you can be a slave to sin and serve sin. Those are your two options. Sin. All sin is a form of idolatry. It's false worship. It is the result of worshipping a false God, and you will become a slave to the thing you worship. If you worship the real God and serve him, you will reach for him, you will obey him, you will follow him, you will hear him, you will welcome him, you will shape your life around him. Whatever you need to lay down in order to have him in the proper place in your life, that's the price you are willing to pay because he is your God, he is your highest love. Or, in order to reach for sin instead, what you have to do is you have to turn away from God. And in doing so, you will become a slave to your sin. You will be a slave to whatever you worship. This is, we need to know this. You will be a slave to whatever you worship. Let's take an example, materialism. Here's one that we all wrestle with from time to time, right? What is materialism? It's not having things. Having things isn't sin. Worshipping things is sin. Right? You know the difference between having a thing and worshipping a thing. It's when it gets, I mean, the, the place we see it most easily is when it gets taken away from us. What reaction do you have? Has someone taken your God away? Or has someone taken a thing away? Right? I can't be happy without the thing. If I lose the thing, I've lost everything. Life doesn't, how could I, how could I, how could I breathe without you? Tell me, I want to know. Life is uncertain, isn't it? It's easy to see these last two years. Life is uncertain. The world is crazy. Some of the things that we've taken for granted, we can't take for granted anymore. And sometimes what we do is we reach out to stuff, to the thing, for comfort that should rightly come from God alone. There is a risk that the thing becomes your God. And if the thing becomes your God, if the thing takes God's rightful place in your life, the irony is if you let that happen, the thing no longer serves you. The thing is no longer there to comfort you. You serve the thing. It has mastery over you. You will do whatever you need to do to get the thing and maintain the thing, and you are no longer free to live for God. Because if God says, come with me and leave the thing behind, God, you're asking me to leave God behind. I can't leave the thing. 
If God says go, you can't. You can't leave what you worship behind. And if God takes it away from you in his grace, you will be angry with him and reject him. That's how you know you're worshipping the thing. Everybody worships something. And ultimately, it will be God or it will be something else. What has all of this got to do with helping us to reject sin? That's the last critical piece of the puzzle, isn't it? It's the the last application. (laughs) Paul is calling us to realize that if we're sitting here and thinking, I'm under grace, sin will have no consequence for me because my sin is forgiven. So I can play with it. If you are thinking that suicidal thought, stop, (laughs) you are in danger. Wisdom considers outcomes, doesn't it? What wisdom considers outcomes. Long-term planning is, is something of a skill that I sometimes feel like we're, we're lacking in. For those of you struggling to choose between some kind of sin in your life and obedience to Jesus, you feel yourself at that, at that fork in the road. You know what it is, right? I don't need to tell you the thing that you have been fighting with God over. You know. You, you, you know it either because you are yet to become a Christian and you are deciding if you will hand your life over to God and He is the roadblock. And until I get over this... God can't have me. Or you are a Christian and you thought that because we were under grace, you could dabble in sin without consequences and you have been finding out that there are consequences. It's not that you've lost your salvation. You've been made a slave. You hate that slavery and you are continuing in that slavery. You've been wrestling with God over whether or not to put the thing down. Consider the outcome. Consider the outcome. Consider it before you begin, but consider it even now. Romans 6, 19 to 23. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. It's a little bit condescending. We can move on. That's aggressive. But just as you once presented your members as slaves to sin, you you know, your members is like the bits of your body, which, by the way, is totally as passages like this where our concept of church membership comes from. That if you are a member of a church, it's, it's, it's like saying you're part of the body, you're, you're an organ, you're a finger, you're a head. You once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. In for a penny, in for a pound, right? And so now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. By the way, when we, when we began our journey into this long book of Romans, we, we wrote down in that little booklet that you probably have lost by now a, a number of key memory verses across the course of this book. Romans 6, 23 is one of them. Let me read it again. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Sinner, are you enjoying your slavery? Do you like what it's producing in your life? 
Do you like the road it's taking you down? Do you like feeling appalled that that thing you thought was gone is still around and it's gotten worse? How's it going? What fruit, what fruit is your dabbling producing in your life? Consider the outcome. Is it really doing what it promised at the front door? It's like that when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. He said, look, if you bend the knee, worship me. I will give you the world. That's what sin does. Promises the world. Can it deliver? What's been your experience? Did you sacrifice everything to get the house? Has the house given your life meaning? Did you change who you were to impress someone? Was it worthwhile? Is it really and truly meeting your deepest needs and satisfying your soul and bringing you to eternal life? Or is it that you are stuck in a cycle of fear and shame that you hope no one else sees and on the outside, life is great? Because that's what we do. Ultimately, sin kills. That is its final destination. To begin down the road to sin is to start down the highway of destruction. There's a signpost right at the front door. It's like when you're driving down the highway and you see, I get this every time I drive on the highway north, by the way. It's like we're just going to the Sunshine Coast, but there is a sign there that says Cairns. And one day, I tell you what. Because <laughs> that's where the road leads, right? It's that old Bourbon Gary. So. Am I the only one, by the way? No, surely not. I'm sorry, kids. You're going to have to hold. I hope you went before we left home. That's the road, that's the road that you're on. It doesn't lead anywhere else. Just the further down that road you go, the further you get to that end. Ultimately, sin kills. It's its final destination. That is, the, that is the road it is leading you down. And by the grace of God, this is the message of Romans 6, you don't need to continue walking down that road. You are free to stop, Christian. At any moment in time, God has and has freely given to you the power to get off the highway to destruction and start on the road home. You're free. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. This is the best kind of freedom that we can hope to have. And without slavery to Christ, you can't have this kind of freedom. You must, you must, you must worship God as your highest love. You must be willing to obey Him at all costs and be willing to lose all in order to gain Him. Because if anyone would save his life, he will lose it. But anyone who loses his life in Jesus' name will save it. Get off the highway. Just walk away. This is what the word repent means. Turn. Just turn around. Face your God. And start heading towards Him by His grace. Can you, like, just, just help yourself for just a moment. Can you recall a time in your life like this? I mean, when, when you felt that God was trying to, to pry an idol out of your stony grip, and you let him do it. Can you remember a time like that in your life? What fruit did it produce? 
to put down your idol and to turn to God. And tonight we are going to be celebrating baptism with young Tom. He has decided, as a teenager, to publicly declare his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing that, what has he put down? The same thing all of us put down when we made that decision. For many of us, it's the fear of what will people think. That's what it was for me. What will people think? What will people think if they knew that I was one of those dorky Christian types? He's, he's making a choice, do you understand? He can let the worship of people's opinion drive his life. He could be a slave. And where does that road lead? Directly away from God. To spiritual and eternal destruction. Or he can become a slave of righteousness. He can serve God and in doing so, he loses control over the thing. What will people think of me? Not my problem. Some will approve. I mean, there's a lot of people here. We've got clapping and cheering and probably dancing. Baptist church, maybe. Some will think he's an idiot. Call him names. But in, in, instead of their approval, what he will receive is sanctification, salvation, and its end. Eternal life. It's a pretty good trade. Have you had a time like that in your life? Where, where, where you were hanging on to something and then you finally put it down and now you're free to serve God. Can you remember? Can you, can you remember? How did you feel? For me personally, those have been the most deeply happy parts of my life. Not because I had all the things. Because I had him. He was winning. And I knew it. Let's go there. Let's go down that road and see where it ends. We need God's help to do this, of course. That's the good news of salvation by grace. We have it. It's a certainty. He is willing. He is able. He is here. We need God's help. We need to reach out to Jesus and to ask him to rescue us from our idols. That's, that's, that's what the turning around looks like. And he is faithful to do it. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive it. Prayer goes like this. Lord, I put it down. And I turn to you. Lord, help me to put it down and turn to you. Because <laughs> without you, I'm lost. The best bit is that the answer is obvious. Brothers and sisters, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. I've been a fool. I've been an unfaithful idiot. I have been content to play in the muck and the mire of sin, thinking that because you are gracious, I'm safe. 
and not realizing that I'm willingly placing myself into slavery. And I know I'm in slavery. I see its fruit. I see the way I'm stuck and have been stuck for so long. How I repeat the same folly again and again like a fool. And I want freedom from that slavery. I want to be a different kind of person. I want your lordship and the fruit that follows in its wake to be seen in my life. I want to experience the freedom of being a slave to righteousness. Well, I can't do that. You can do that. Please do it. For what it is worth, I take my, my broken, imperfect will and I, I lay it at your feet. Say, help me, rescue me, save me, oh my God. I turn to you and I ask that you would restore me and give me the fruit that leads to eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, that you are faithful and you are just. Thank you for the free gift of salvation. Would it have its full effect in me, I pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond in worship.